when we talk about terrorism over the past little while, we've talked mostly about Islamist terrorism and more recently far-right terrorism. But is there another form of terrorism we should be worried about? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, pre President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada, listening to Canadian Intelligence Aid, podcasts about security and public safety. As I said, there's, there seems to be a bias when it comes to terrorism as a subject of discussion. And yet there's a whole series, or rather a, a new trend, maybe not so new, that's taking part in, in one part of the world, which is very worrisome from a violent extremism perspective. And that's what's happening in India. This is something that I have called in my, in my writings, especially in my, my fifth book, When Religions Kill, Hindu extremism. And it's not very well known outside of sort of the limited academic community and perhaps uh, those of us who worked in, in security intelligence. And as a consequence, I thought we should learn more about this, this form of terrorism. And so to do this, I, I'm delighted to bring into the conversation uh, Professor Paul Marshall. He's a Wilson Professor of Religious Freedom at Baylor University, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom, and a senior fellow at the Lemina Institute in Jakarta. He's the author, editor of more than 20 books on religion and politics especially religious freedom. Uh, Professor Marshall, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Phil. Now, there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around, uh, Professor Marshall, when it comes to this particular form of extremism. And one is that I see a lot is what's called Hindutva, so H-I-N-D-U-T-V-A. What is Hindutva? It's, it's basically um, an ideology. It's developed in India, the sort of major theorists were writing in the 1920s, 1930s, when they were, when the British uh, still ruled over India, and they wanted to get rid of the British, but the, the, there was more than that, they were very different from someone like Gandhi, and, and had a sort of ideology of Indianness, uh, which draws on the Hindu religion, uh, sometimes it has uh, racial overtones. There were you know, links with, with uh, Germany at the time, and, and more cultural. So what you shouldn't think of it as a uh, so the Hindu religion. It's it's more that uh, we represent India, its history, its culture, and that's tied in in with Hinduism. And the emphasis is that. Basically, India must be for those who accept Hindutva. There are Muslims here, there are Christians here, um, and they may stay, but they have to realize that uh, this is basically uh, Hindu culture, and they must accept that. And that's also tied in with a, a great fear of minorities. Mm -hmm. You had especially... Um, all minorities, but the biggest one is, is the, the Muslim minority. Mm -hmm. uh, India has the second highest population of Muslims in the world. Yes. Um, you know, over 200 million. So there's, there's the fear of that. And um, it's been a growing ideology um, since then and has become dominant in Indian politics. Would it be fair, Professor Marshall, to call Hindutva a racist view of India, or is, am I going too far with that? Um, it has that element. 
simply to call it a, a racial view uh, would be too strong. But um, there is an emphasis on, um, for example, uh, we, the people who are Hindus, we go back thousands of years in um, India. Whereas the, uh, the Muslims, they came six, seven hundred years ago, right. the Christians uh, more recently. So it's a it's a peoplehood. Obviously, that ties in with, with the sort of uh, racial elements of India, but India itself is very diverse. So sort of a religious, cultural, racial, historic uh, amalgam, almost a feeling and an attitude rather than really worked out ideology. Which is fine. I mean, you know, each nation has their own way of, I think, describing its own history, what it's proud in. But the one thing that I have noticed over the past little while, and, and I don't know that this area as well as you do, but it, it's become worrisome of late because it has been associated with violence. So you mentioned the fact that India is, is the second largest Muslim nation in the world after Indonesia. So it's people people don't realize this, that Actually, the top four Muslim nations are not really Middle Eastern nations per se or Arab nations. The thing that I found in my research, were, were, uh, you know, with respect to the treatment of the Hindu minority, although a very large minority, as you say, over 200 million people, were these uh, concerns by Hindu nationalists that, that Muslims were doing two things. One was they were engaged in what they call love jihad, which, as they say, is the forcible conversion of Hindu women to Islam, sort of a... Uh, yeah. You know, uh, this notion that they're sort of stealing Hindus from their faith. And the second one, the so-called cow vigilantes, where Hindus, of course, treat cows as sacred and Muslims are often involved in, in the in the uh, sort of the butchery trade. And, and Muslims have been killed for, you know, killing and consuming cows. How bad is the situation now in India, Professor Marshall, when it comes to that fringe of, of Hindutva, which is truly violent in nature or potentially violent in nature and India's Muslim community? Um, it's getting bad. You're getting um, violence almost every week. Um, most of it's a low. It's it's a um, like the examples you give. Let's say a, a Muslim man and a Hindu woman are found, uh, and there may be a riot. People with stone stores and things things of that kind. So there's a lot of tension. In some instances, uh, very bad. In the year 2002. In the province of Gujarat, in in the west of India, um, two thousand Muslims were killed over the space of three days, mm -hmm. um, as this an entire town or neighbourhood was destroyed. That was tied to another feature uh, that the claim that um, uh, many Muslim mosques are built on the sites of earlier Hindu temples, right. and the push to destroy the mosque and restore the temple, and that, that was happening um, in that area. A lot of tension, then there was a fire on a train, and uh, 58 Hindus were killed, and Muslims were accused of, of setting that fire, and then that, that led to a riot with, with thousands dead. And just to add, the present Prime Minister of India, uh, Modi, he was in fact the leader of that province, at the time, and I, I don't think anybody's accused him of sort of leading and, and championing the riot. But the accusation is that the um, the authorities were very slow um, in 
down on that? Where were the police? Uh, where the where was the approach of the National Guard? And uh, Modi was not uh, outspoken against it. So at the least, you would say his response then was weak. So you 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 have had uh, situations. That, that's the only one of that scale. But you do tend to get that mob violence breaking out. You almost stole my question in advance, Professor Marshall, on okay. on, on, on Narendra Modi. That's okay. Uh, Modi is obviously uh, he's an Indian nationalist. I would call him also a Hindu nationalist. His BJP party, of course, is very close with the RSS. And I always forget what that stands for, but it's a, it's a Hindu nationalist uh, movement. Um, yeah. Okay. Without you know putting you know the blame squarely on Modi's shoulders for the 2002 incident. Is it not also true that the current, uh, you know, Indian Prime Minister, at a minimum, is turning a blind eye to the extremist fringe? And can I go as far as to saying he's almost going like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sort of supporting it? Or would that be an exaggeration on my part? No, I think the nudge, nudge, wink, wink is um, a pretty good way of getting it. I mean, but he's not going to support uh, violence at the upper reaches and at the national level, the upper reaches of the BJP are uh, not going to do that. Um, but the degree to which they condemn them it is uh, is quite weak. So it's sort of played for political advantage to so the degree to which um, a lot of Hindus can um, be fearful of their own future, that they're going to be swamped by Muslims by the means you mentioned, uh, then it gives an electoral advantage. So um, the, if the government were more outspoken, um, if, I think if the authorities responded more quickly, we'd see a, we'd see a different uh, picture. So it's for the political advantage to see what's going on. If I could mention, too, the, um, uh, what you do see in cultural uh, policy, like the changing the school textbooks, mm -hmm. the changing the history textbooks, to em emphasize the, the Hindu element here and to write the other groups out of Indian history, and uh, particularly with the uh, Islamic invasions in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, um, major uh, stresses on that, then you have a phenomenon, it's in some of the books, but not widespread, of a push by Hindutva activists. If they produce a map of India, which includes modern-day India, Pakistan, um, Afghanistan, Nepal, Bhutan, and uh, you know, maybe going into parts of uh, Bangladesh. So this... Um, claiming this, this huge area as the sort of the Indian homeland, which needs to be uh, protected and integrated. Well, and there's no question the BJP party, it, my reading of modern Indian politics is they're still doing quite well in the various states across India. So this policy of not cracking down on the extremist element uh, of the Hindu nationalists is not hurting the party in, in any way whatsoever then. Again, wouldn't say go and kill these people, 
but they do sort of whip crowds up and, and mm. claim uh, that the mosques are uh, fermenting uh, sedition and that uh, the, we need to replace some of these mosques. Uh, they're very concerned about conversion to especially to Christianity. So at the provincial level, uh, these things are much stronger. If you go to you know, the average BJP voter, uh, many of them would be Hindutva, uh, not in the sense they're going to go out and kill people, but a sort of Indian national pride is an element. But for many of them, it's Modi, in terms of the economy and other things, the BJP and Modi govern very effectively. And the opposition um, is uh, very weak, and um, it, it, it's been in the um, uh, hands of the same family now for, for almost uh, decades. So there's a, there's a weak opposition and a good economic record. So it, uh, Modi and the BJP can get um, support for those reasons from people who are not into Hindutva. Uh, I've seen some of the rhetoric used at the state level in India by, you know, governors, and it's simply awful. Like you said, you know, they won't they won't call for killing, but the language they use to describe Muslims and even Christians on occasion uh, is quite nasty in nature. And it's not a surprise that that rhetoric has been picked up by some people as pretty well a tacit a tacit uh, permission uh, to carry out attacks. Uh, yeah, it is. It whips up the area. You make people afraid, make people angry, and uh, you give them an enemy, a scapegoat. So um, uh, people are going to react to that. So there's, there's the tension, and then violence erupts because you keep keep the population on, uh, on edge and... Um, believing that they have an enemy there and you, you don't have to say go and attack them, go and kill them with enough tension, enough anger that's going to erupt every so often. Now we've been talking so far Professor Marshall about what's happening in India. Now you put out a piece recently in the European Eye on Radicalization which I'll put a link to it in the when I publish the podcast together with uh, Lydia Papp, who's a research fellow also at the Religious Freedom Institute. And the title was The Hindutva Threat Outside of India. Now, it, so it's, you know, it has been largely to date an India-centric phenomenon. Are we starting to see yes. the branching out into beyond India of Hindu extremism? Uh, yes, we are. The, um, you know, there are tens of millions of people from India abroad live now in other countries. Um, like Canada? States, including Canada. Yeah, in the United States and maybe in Canada also. It's, it's probably the um, fastest growing minority. That's one thing. And um, I, I would say that, you know, many of the uh, Indian immigrants are, seem to be exceptionally talented. Yes. Again, let me use an American example. They are the wealthiest ethnic group in the United States. Right, right. By far, with average incomes of over $100,000. And so, very talented uh, and uh, upwardly mobile. And you're finding the places I looked at were the English speaking 
countries, uh, United States, Canada, the UK itself, Australia, New Zealand, simply because of the, the ties. You know, Britain ruled India for centuries. Mm -hmm. So you, you have these links that the, the current uh, British Prime Minister yes. is of uh, you know, Indian and he's a Hindu. So uh, the links are stronger here. And um, if you look at that, there, there are a few phenomena. Is one is uh, people are sending money back to India, uh, which is fine. Lots of people send money back to the home country for their sister's wedding or whatever. Uh, but uh, a lot of these are, are, are going to support um, radical moves, uh, groups which are seeking to demolish mosques or whipping up hatred. Some of the funds from overseas is going there. There was one very concrete instance. Uh, this just happened uh, two weeks ago, and I added it to the article that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, in Texas, in the town of Frisco, a, um, a Hindu group was having its, its annual meeting, and it was having a uh, fundraiser. And it announced that one of the goals of the fundraiser was to help in the demolition of illegal churches in Tirupati in India, and also for a campaign to reconvert uh, Christians back to the Hinduism. Well, two things here. Um, you will find in uh, India uh, that may be illegal churches or mosques or temples, but the government tends to single out the non-Hindu ones. Right. They say, they're not properly registered. They didn't. They didn't really have approval when they were built. Of course, they could have been built two centuries ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a problem if someone builds puts up an illegal building. But if there's a similar Hindu temple close by, they don't get worked up. So there's discrimination. Right. But uh, but more importantly, if there are illegal churches, who deals with that? The government. Mm -hmm. So they are appealing for money to go to government and security authorities in India to uh, you know, either uh, knock down or close down these churches. And um, that's not a charitable activity, um, funding a government, particularly in religiously tense activities. So there is, there is money going from these diasporas uh, into India, not only for the normal things that people send money back uh, to the country of origin, uh, but to fund radical policies, and you're finding uh, in Dutfa organizations uh, in North America and, and in, in, you know, including Canada here, uh, which are uh, supporting this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in Canada, you've had sort of in Dutfa slogans um, painted on a, uh, a Sikh school and um, one man, one Banerjee, a Canadian Hindu nationalist, um, his rhetoric on YouTube is calling for violence. Mm -hmm. So you're getting money sent back home, uh, radicals trying to whip up populations um, over here, and then a quite widespread phenomenon, also in Canada, is when you get uh, an academic writing something about contemporary India, um, or the, uh, often the history of India, you know, scholarly works, which most of us would find you know, quite boring unless our subject is Indian history, um, that they've been vilified and threatened 
And uh, you know, lots of people could get threats. I've I've had threats. They, I don't think they were particularly serious. They were just angry people mouthing off for a moment. But uh, there are cases here which are serious enough and the ongoing millions of uh, uh, people have had hundreds of them. And you're getting academics who now, uh, you know, at the advice of the police, um, have security when they give uh, speeches. So you go to university, university hires extra security for them. This has happened in the U.S., it's happened in Canada, it's happened in Australia, and it's happened in um, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, you don't seem to get that much with uh, other radical groups, but that, that's uh, quite a widespread uh, phenomenon. And then in the UK, at least, United Kingdom, England, that, that this year there have been some riots. Um, usually after, uh, they've been after cricket matches between um, India and Pakistan. Right, Pakistan right. largely um, uh, Muslim, and so People have been out sort of dem- celebrating the victory, um, and then uh, in, in one case, uh, Hindus marched through a Muslim area in Leicester, in England, yes. and there were tensions. No, there was violence there. So this is the first time, apart from the threats to academics, uh, this year is the first time there's been sort of communal violence um, outside of India between so people and uh, Muslims. Okay. I, I want to end uh, our conversation, Professor Marshall. I want to quote something from that aforementioned article in European Iron Radicalization. Quote, So far, Hindutva's overseas influence is limited. It is usually manifest in seeking political influence in diaspora cu- countries and support, financial and otherwise, for Hindutva activities in India itself. However, there are increasing threats to academics and other people, others who are critical of the regime, and find in the last two years there have been incidents of violence, the situation is likely to worsen. In that vein, then, married to the fact that uh, I've been reading a lot more about potential other mosques, Mughal area mosques, being destroyed because of allegations they've been yeah. built on the sites of, of Hindu temples, um, how bad is it going to get, do you think? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but how worried are you about the increase in violence from Hindu extremists? And it's important to point out, we've been talking a lot about violence against Muslims, but as you mentioned, we've had Sikh uh, Gurdwaras here in Canada defaced. Uh, we've had attacks yeah. against Christians. Uh, how bad do you fear this thing might get, both both within India and abroad? Um, the um, abroad, um, I think you may get the sort of violence that you've had in India. In sorry, in, in India, point in the United Kingdom, in, in Leicester, of sort of. Uh, uh, people on the streets, and then they get a fight with each other and start throwing stones and fighting. Um, I think that will continue, but you know that's um, really low level. I don't think we're going to get uh, massive staged attacks on um, churches or um, mosques or anything of that kind. So local violence, threats against academics, I think um, that will continue. In India itself, there aren't any real barriers to this spreading at the moment. As as you had mentioned, the government is, even apart from Hindutva, the, the government is very popular. The BJP has been winning in more and more of the provinces. 
the uh, opposition is weak, so that um, the, the things which are supporting radicalization are continuing. So I'm, I think, at least in the next few years, this is likely to get worse, and we'll get sort of more riots and more deaths and more tension. Wow, you, you paint a very dire picture of the situation, and I, I must say that I don't know as much about it as you do, obviously, but what I have seen uh, makes me worry to a great deal as well about what the future of India, uh, the, the overseas thing is also is also of concern, but I think India, I'm not saying it would implode, but certainly this is uh, not a good not a good development for the world's largest democracy and uh, doesn't paint a good picture. So, Professor Marshall, I, I really want to thank you to, for taking the time to to walk my listeners through this. As I said, it's, it's an area that's not very well known. I think you've drawn a really very realistic and alarming picture of an aspect of violent extremism, which we would call terrorism as well, for many people that uh, simply weren't aware of it. So thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me, Phil. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Dr. Paul Marshall. Uh, have you been following events in India or perhaps in the diaspora? Uh, it is of a concern. I'd love to hear what you, what you think about our, our conversation. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'd also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content want to get more of it, go to my website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. Read all the podcasts and all the blogs. You can read and listen to them at your leisure. Uh, if you have any ideas for other podcasts or guests, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Until then, take care.